Hi again. Welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast. Last time, we talked about Harald Bluetooth, the king who united Denmark and made it a Christian country. Harald was either forced to be baptized or found it to be politically advantageous to do so. And once he was a Christian, he did what he could to spread the new religion among the Danes. He also tried to extend his own political influence, but not necessarily Christianity, to Norway as well. As we covered in episode 22, after Erik Bloodaxe died in 954, his sons allied with Harald Bluetooth against their uncle, King Harald the Good of Norway. Harald Bluetooth paid for three invasion fleets for his nephews to try and oust King Hakon and install a king that would be more amenable to Danish requests and needs on the Norwegian throne. The Eriksons fought several battles against King Hakon, who managed to defeat them twice. Actually, Technically, he managed to defeat them three times, but the last time he died from his wounds soon after having sent the Eriksons packing back to Denmark again. When King Håkon the Good died after the Battle of Fityar in the year 961, the retreating Eriksons were called back and Harald Eriksson, the oldest surviving son of Erik Bloodaxe, ascended the throne of Norway. Harald Bluetooth could not have been more pleased. As far as he was concerned, he was the one who had won his nephew his crown, so he expected the new Norwegian king to do his bidding. It would soon turn out that Harald Eriksson saw things differently. Episode 24, Harald vs. Harald. Just like his grandfather and namesake, Harald Fairhair, the second Harald on the Norwegian throne also had a nickname, Harald Greycloak. According to tradition, Harald acquired this nickname after an encounter with a crew of an Icelandic merchant ship, which uh, carried a large load of vararfeldir, a type of fake fur made from sheep's wool. The Icelanders were having trouble selling their wares, so when the king asked them if they would give him one for free, they saw absolutely no reason to refuse his request. The king took the fur, which happened to be grey, and slung it over his shoulders like a cloak. People noticed, and various sycophants who wanted to flatter or curry favour with the monarch immediately started to copy him. A trend was born, and the Icelanders, who probably couldn't believe their luck, sold their entire load of previously unsellable furs in no time. Ever since then, Harald was known as Harald Greycloak. King Harald Greycloak was the oldest of the surviving Eriksons. But there had been three more who had been killed along the way back to Norway. One had died in England, and two in their attempts to regain their father's throne. At this point, King Harald had four additional surviving younger brothers as well. There was also at least one sister, and, as it'll turn out, that was pretty lucky for the rest of the family. According to the sagas, the sons were all handsome, tall, strong and brave. But they were also all essentially English or Danish, having either left Norway very young or having been born abroad. When Harald and his brothers returned to Norway, it was a largely strange country to them. As I'm sure you've noticed by now, this is a bit of a common theme among the first kings of Norway. The Norwegians still hadn't developed any noticeable respect for the rules of succession, and instead exiled members of the royal family did what they could to claw their way back to the top. The Eriksons' strangeness was accentuated by the fact that they were Christians. Since they had grown up in England, they had been baptized and given Christian upbringings and educations, to whatever extent they were educated. This fitted the general pattern where the elites 
with foreign connections adopted the new religion early, whereas their countrymen back home in Scandinavia preferred the old gods. Another challenge was the fact that Harold Greycloak wasn't even supposed to ever have become king. Two of his elder brothers, Guthrum and Gamle, had been killed fighting to oust their uncle Håkon the Good, so now it was up to the third but oldest surviving son of son Harold to be king. It might be worthwhile to remember that the Norwegians didn't know them either, except as invaders. They'd been pretty happy with Håkon as king. They'd even called him Håkon the Good. They hadn't harbored any burning desire to reinstate the sons of Eric Bloodaxe as kings of Norway. They'd even toppled their father because he'd been such a bad ruler. Their mother, Gunnhild, was not unfamiliar with Norway though. She'd ruled here as queen some twenty years before, until her husband Eric Bloodaxe had been forced into exile by his younger brother Håkon. In fact, it was largely her ambition and her brother Harald Bluetooth's money that were to thank for Harald's elevation to the Norwegian throne. Gunhild was the matriarch of the family, and she dominated it, bossing her five surviving sons around, including the king. History knows her as Gunhild, mother of kings, because not only was Harald Greycloak the king of all of Norway, but several of her remaining sons were eventually made under kings and given regions of Norway to rule in his name. But Gunhild was definitely the power behind the throne. If she had been an influential advisor at her husband's court, Eric Bloodaxe, she was practically calling the shots at the court of her son, Harald Greycloak, for better and for worse. As king, Harald Greycloak only controlled parts of his father's and grandfather's kingdom. He had little authority outside of Western Norway, at least to begin with. Arguably, he didn't even control that bit because he was under the thumb of his mother and the Danish king, Harald Bluetooth, who had paid for him to take the throne. In the year 961, Uncle Harald Bluetooth from Denmark even travelled to Norway and declared Harald Greycloak to be his vassal king in Norway. Greycloak can't have been particularly happy about that. It might have sweetened the deal a bit if Uncle Bluetooth at least had made him his vassal king in all of Norway. But Harald Bluetooth couldn't care less about his nephew's hurt pride. The Danish king had been in control of eastern Norway already for quite some time, because that part of the country was ruled by two petty kings called Gudred Björnsson and Tryggve Olafsson, who recognized Harald Bluetooth as their lord. They had been exemplary vassals, no fuss, loyal, and most importantly, they had always paid their taxes in full and on time. Harold Bluetooth saw no reason to change that arrangement just to stroke his nephew's ego. But maybe it was for the best that Harold Greycloak and his brothers didn't have too much power, because even though they had all their pos uh, positive characteristics, their handsomeness, their strength, their bravery, etc., the Eriksons were also arrogant, greedy, and cheap. And being cheap could be dangerous if you're a leader in the Viking Age. Remember how we talked about how chieftains and kings could build their power base and strengthen alliances by giving gifts and hosting lavish parties? If you don't, I suggest you go back to the episode called The Viking at Home. Or just take my word for it. When talking about Harald Fairhair, we also saw how skilled he, the Ericsson's grandfather was in employing this technique. He won allies and friends by generously drizzling tax money and confiscated lands over those who chose to join his cause. Unfortunately, his grandson, Harold Greycloak, had not learned that particular lesson. Despite being much richer than Harold Fairhair and had ever been, he was much stingier with his money. He was even known to be cheap, 
which could be downright dangerous for a Viking Age leader. Vikings were not great supporters of fiscal responsibility. A poet once wrote a poem about how in the reign of Hawkon the Good he used to wear a precious golden arm ring, but now, in Harold Greycloak's time, he had hidden it away. The implication being that otherwise the king would take it from him. When Harold Greycloak heard about this poem, he was incensed. Not only was it insulting, but it could also be dangerous. So what did he do? Well, he summoned the poet and forced him to hand over the golden arm ring. The punishment may have shut the poet up, but it did absolutely nothing to quell the rumor that the king was greedy and cheap. Another way in which Harold Greycloak alienated his subjects was his attempt to spread Christianity among them. In the western regions, where he had direct authority, he favored missionary work and worked to suppress the old religion, for instance by tearing down temples to the old gods. This did nothing to improve his standing in the eyes of the Norwegians. Despite being so ill-suited for power, or more likely because of it, Harald moved to strengthen his rule and gain control also over Trøndelag to the north and the eastern regions of Norway as well. Some sources claim that it was his mother, the ambitious and cunning Gunhild mother of kings, who was the brains behind the plan. This may be true, but it may also be yet another example of the old the evil woman behind the throne trope that ancient and medieval authors so liked to indulge in whenever they had to describe the rule of obviously inept men. First, Harald Greycloak moved against Trøndelag. At this time, it was ruled by the powerful Jarl Sigurd Håkansson, the guy who'd given King Håkon the Good his name, and who had then been such a loyal ally to him until he was killed by his nephews. It was not overly surprising that Jarl Sigurd was not a big fan of the new regime, consisting of the men who had killed his great friend, King Håkon. Harald Greycloak knew that he wasn't strong enough to challenge Jarl Sigurd openly, so he developed a sneaky plan, or maybe his mother did. As part of that plan, Harald and his mother sailed north and took up residence not far from the border to Jarl Sigurd's Trøndelag. From there, the king sent lavish gifts to the Jarl, asking him to be his friend and let bygones be bygones. He even invited Jarl Sigurd to visit him in his present location. The Jarl graciously accepted the gifts and sent the king a warm reply with profuse thanks, but he politely declined the invitation to visit. He might have been charmed by the gifts, but he wasn't stupid. He knew that it would be foolish to reject an offer of friendship, but equally foolish to trust it. King Harald and his mother were quite disappointed when they received Sigurd's response, since they of course had been planning to kill him as soon as they could lay their hands on him. But they didn't give up just because of this one setback. Instead, they dispatched another set of gifts, this time to Jarl Sigurd's younger brother, who was also invited to visit the king. Unlike Sigurd, his younger brother did accept the invitation, and while visiting the king, he and his mother Gunhild pampered and flattered him. They treated him with all thinkable honor and respect, telling him that it was such a shame that his brother was the Jarl and not him. What a waste of talent. If he would only help them to get rid of his pesky brother, they would make him the Jarl of Trøndelag, and all the region's riches would be his. The flattering worked, as it so often does. Sigurd's brother returned home, hell-bent on delivering his brother to King Harald. Soon enough, an opportunity presented itself. Jarl Sigurd went on an expedition to the inner parts of the Trondheim Fjord, and, more importantly, 
he went with only a small retinue. Word was immediately sent to the king, who didn't waste any time. He set out in pursuit of Jarl Sigurd at the head of a large force of warriors and four longships. They found the Jarl and surprised him, attacking at night, killing him. His treacherous brother was now made Jarl, and King Harald Greycloak had gained control over all of northern Norway in one fell swoop. He now had direct control over the Norwegian Atlantic coast, and more importantly, the lucrative trade route to the north. The so-called Finn tax, paid by traders in the Arctic region, had previously been paid to the Jarl in Trendelag, but Harald Greycloak now took direct control of that revenue stream. The tax was paid in kind, mostly in skins, furs and walrus tusks. Walrus tusks were a luxury item used as an alternative to ivory and fetched a high price in Europe. Walrus skin was made into strong, durable ropes and rigging used on ships. The pristine white winter fur of various Arctic animals were both uh, of high quality and exotic. White ermine fur would eventually be restricted exclusively for royal use and is still today associated with royalty. Also, grey squirrel furs were rare and exclusive, fetching a high price on the European fur market. In fact, an alternative explanation to why Harold was called Grey Cloak is that he had a virtual monopoly on this extremely lucrative grey squirrel trade. So things started to look up for Harold Grey Cloak. He had both expanded his territory and vastly increased his income. But he shouldn't have been too complacent. Jarl Sigurd might have been killed, but his son, Håkon Sigurdsson, had managed to escape. Some said he was hiding somewhere in Trendelag, others said he had escaped the country. Either way, after a couple of years, he returned with a large force and avenged his father by killing his treacherous uncle and claiming the title of Jarl for himself. This was bad news for King Harald, who was basically back to square one. Years of fighting, basically a low-intensity civil war, followed until the locals in Trendelag had enough. Chieftains forced through a negotiated settlement. Håkon received his father's jarldom, and Harald received his uncle's kingdom, and both parties accepted each other's claims. Both King Harald and Jarl Håkon realized that they weren't strong enough to win this fight, so they both accepted the deal, albeit without too much enthusiasm. But peace, a fragile peace, sure, but still peace, returned to Trendelag, at least for the time being. But neither side had either forgiven nor forgotten. And when Gunhild, mother of kings, heard a rumor that the new Jarl, Håkon Sigurdsson, had traveled to the eastern regions of Norway, alarm bells started to go off in her head. Jarl Håkon had gone to see King Harald Greycloak's cousins, the petty kings Gudrid Björnsson and Tryggve Olafsson, who ruled in the eastern parts of Norway, roughly speaking around the Oslo Fjord today. This was the only part of Norway that King Harald Greycloak still didn't have control over. Instead, as I said a few minutes ago, Gudrid and Tryggve were vassals of Harald Bluetooth of Denmark, just like Harald Greycloak was supposed to be. Why had the Jarl gone to see them? Gunhild concluded that there could only be one reason. Treason. So Gunhild decided that it would be best to attack before they were attacked. So she developed yet another sneaky plan. King Harald Greycloak let it be known that he would go raiding in the Baltic Sea the following summer. This was something Harald had done before. In fact, it was common practice among Viking Age kings not to be too burdened by business of state to stop them from taking a few weeks off in the summer to go and pillage, rape and murder overseas. King Harald was bringing along his younger brother Guthred, 
not to be confused with his cousin Guthred, the petty king who was one of the two targets for their sneaky plan. He also invited other strong and brave warriors to come along as well. They gathered a sizable fleet and prepared to set off. The night before they were set to depart, the king arranged a grand feast to toast for their success. At this party, the alcohol flowed freely and everyone got drunk, really plastered. In this state of inebriation, King Harold Greycloak and his brother Guthred got into a fight. It got really bad and they drew swords threatening to kill each other and everything. Their men managed to calm them down enough so no blood was spilt then and there, but the raiding was off. Guthred and King Harold took their respective ships and sailed off in a huff in separate directions. Guthred sailed straight to Viken, where their cousin Tryggve Olafsson ruled. Guthred sent a message to Tryggve saying that he was really furious at his idiot brother and that he wanted an alliance with Tryggve against Harold. Together they could topple Harold Greycloak and when Guthred was king he'd recognize Tryggve's rule in his own petty kingdom. Tryggve Olafsson thought this sounded very good. But his pregnant wife, Astrid, thought it sounded a little too good. She tried to convince him to be careful and not to trust Gudrad Eriksson. But Tryggve didn't want to listen to her, not even when she said that she'd had a dream. In it, she had a golden ring that was broken in two, and the broken ring started to bleed. This, she insisted, was a sign, a bad omen. But Tryggve was unconvinced by his wife's dreams and warnings. He set off to meet with Gudrad Eriksson. And as soon as he arrived at the meeting, he and the twelve men in his retinue were immediately cut down by Guthred's soldiers. When Astrid heard about her husband's death, she knew what fate would await her if she stayed around in Viken. With the help of her loyal foster father, the pregnant Astrid fled for her and her unborn child's life. On the way, she gave birth to a healthy baby boy. She'd been right to escape while there was still time because Gunnhild, mother of kings, sent soldiers to catch and kill the boy, but they never managed to locate the fugitives. Gunnhild was worried that Tryggve's son would, would grow up and become a pretender to the throne and a problem for Gunnhild's own family. She was 100% right, at least about the pretender part, but when Tryggve's son eventually did return to try and claim the crown of Norway, he would no longer be Gunnhild's or her family's problem. At the same time, as Guthred uh, had gone to Viken, King Harald Greycloak had sailed off to sea, pretending to be heading home. But as soon as he was out of sight from land, he turned his ships toward Guthred Björnson's petty kingdom. Guthred was caught by surprise and King Harald and his men managed to surround and kill him when he was visiting an isolated farm. After this brilliantly executed sneaky plan, with the minor exception of Astrid's successful escape together with the murdered Tryggve Olafsson's newborn son, the eastern region of Norway was now secured and under the control of Harald Greycloak for the first time. Now only one threat remained, Jarl Håkon Sigurdsson in Trendelag. King Harald gathered his ships and his forces and set sail west. All along the coast, he gathered more ships and more men, preparing for a gigantic showdown with Jarl Håkon. But when Jarl Håkon Sigurdsson heard about the approaching fleet under King Harald Greycloak's command that was coming to kill him, he realized he didn't stand a chance. Instead, he escaped yet again. To fill the power vacuum, Harald Greycloak divided Trendelag between two of his younger brothers, who now became petty kings under him, running the show and collecting taxes in Trendelag. Harald Greycloak was looking forward to ruling all of Norway from now on, 
and even though he was grateful to his Danish uncle, he now signalled that he would rule independently from Harald Bluetooth. Harald Greycloak had all the riches of the northern trade route and no longer needed Uncle Bluetooth. To say that Harald Bluetooth wasn't particularly pleased with his nephew's actions would be an understatement. Harald Greycloak wasn't paying his taxes, and he had killed Harald Bluetooth's two vassal kings in eastern Norway, and all this after Harald Bluetooth had put him on the throne. Young people today, absolutely no sense of gratitude. The ungrateful Harald Greycloak needed to be taught a lesson. The Danish king didn't have to wait particularly long for a chance to remind the ungrateful Harald Greycloak who was really in charge. The ousted Jarl Håkon Sigurdsson from Trøndelag eventually found his way to Denmark and King Harald Bluetooth's court, where he was received warmly by the Danish king. Your enemy's enemy is your friend. Jarl Håkon wanted to return to Norway. He was depressed and didn't eat and drink properly. Håkon tried to convince Harald Bluetooth to help him to retake his Jarldom, and that wasn't too difficult. So in the year 970, Harald Bluetooth sent word to his wayward nephew Harald Greycloak in Norway. But it wasn't an angry message asking why Harald Greycloak hadn't paid his taxes or why he'd killed Bluetooth's Norwegian allies. No, no. Instead, Uncle Bluetooth asked Greycloak to join him in a campaign against the Franks. Harald Greycloak must have been both relieved and happy to receive this message. Relieved that Harald Bluetooth didn't seem to be upset about all the tax evasion and ally killing, and happy since Harald Greycloak also liked a good campaign. Nothing to brighten your mood like a little raiding and pillaging. So he equipped a fleet of no fewer than 600 ships, if uh, Snorri Sturluson is to be believed, and set off to Denmark to help his uncle as an equal, king to king. I'm not entirely sure what his mother, Gunhild, who clearly was the smart one in the family, thought of this project. Why didn't she warn him? I mean, she and Harald had used pretty similar methods in the past, pretending to be friends just to come within striking distance of their rivals. So she should have been able to detect a trap straight out of her own playbook. Maybe she did warn Harald and he just ignored her. Or maybe he didn't consult with her this time. Maybe she was away somewhere. Either way, Harald Greycloak and his fleet sailed to Denmark, and when they arrived, they stumbled into an ambush in the Limfjord, where Harald Greycloak was killed. When word got back to Norway that Harald Greycloak was dead and Harald Bluetooth was taking over, the remaining Eriksons tried to muster a force to defend Norway and themselves against the invasion. But they soon realized that the Norwegians had no appetite for defending the Eriksons. During the, their years as rulers of Norway, they had gone from unknowns to hated. Not only were they disliked for their greed, they also had ruled the country high-handedly with no respect for the law, behaving as if they were above the law, governing mere mortals. For instance, one of the brothers, Sigurd, had gone to stay at, a home, at the home of a chieftain in Hordaland. Unfortunately, the chieftain hadn't been at home, but his wife had welcomed Sigurd Eriksson, prepared a meal for him and given him a place to stay, all in accordance with the sacred rules of hospitality. But her guest did not behave quite as exemplary. At night, he raped his hostess. Later that same year, the enraged husband tried to kill Sigurd Eriksson, but was instead killed himself by men in Sigurd's retinue. That incident didn't do much for the Eriksson's popularity. The Norwegians even blamed the Eriksons for the bad weather. During Harald Greycloak's reign, Norway experienced a few bitterly cold winters and unusually rainy summers, 
leading to bad harvests and hunger throughout the kingdom. By coincidence, even the seasonal schools of herring off the coast of Norway were small and unreliable during these years. The pagan Norwegians assumed that the gods were displeased with the Eriksons, and so Norway was suffering divine retribution. Fair or not, the Eriksons were so unpopular that they realized that they didn't stand a chance of winning against Harald Bluetooth. So yet again, Gunhild had to pack up her things and leave Norway for exile abroad. She and her sons went to the Orkney Islands. There, Gunhild and Eric Bloodaxe's daughter was married to the Jarl of Orkney, so the exiled family could stay with them. Turns out the daughter was the only one who managed to hold on to her title and position in the end, and saved the family by offering them a place for a peaceful exile. This final exile of the last surviving Eriksons spelled the end of the dynasty established by Harald Fairhair. None of his direct descendants would ever again sit on the throne of Norway. But even though his children and grandchildren had mostly proven to be useless as kings, the name and prestige of Harald Fairhair remained undiminished. Future pretenders to the Norwegian throne would claim to belong to his wider family in order to boost their own legitimacy. But that's all in the future. Now, when the Eriksons were out of the picture, Harald Bluetooth was in control of his nephew's former kingdom. But he realized he couldn't rule Norway directly by himself. The distance from Denmark was too great, so he appointed the homesick Jarl Håkon Sigurdsson to be his vassal in Norway to run the place in his name. This must have been sweet revenge for Jarl Håkon. Not only had King Harald Greycloak, the man responsible for his father's death, been killed himself, but Jarl Håkon hadn't just gotten his own jarldom of Trendelag back, but he had become the ruler of all of Norway. Technically, he was just running the place for Harald Bluetooth, but still. Not that Jarl Håkon Sigurdsson didn't think he deserved to run Norway, mind you. The Jarl had a rather high opinion of himself, even claiming that he was the direct descendant of Odin, the king of the gods, himself. Albeit 27 generations back, so it was tricky for anyone to fact-check. He had also grown up in the most important family in Norway, with the possible exception of the royal family, of course. That meant that he was used to all kinds of flattering and pampering. When he was six months old, for instance, he got his first tooth. To celebrate this momentous occasion, he was also given his first slave. The slave was a boy named Kark, who had been born on the exact same day as Håkon himself. Kark would stay with Håkon for his whole life, and their fates were to be intertwined. We'll get back to that later. Others also had high opinions of Håkon. Snorri Sturluson, for instance, says that he was generous to his friends, cruel to his enemies, and that he had good-looking legs all praiseworthy qualities in the Viking Age. So now Jarl Håkon Sigurdsson was king in all but name in Norway. He only needed to pay taxes and provide military help to Harald Bluetooth if and when the Danish king required assistance. And as you all know, who remember the previous episode, Harald Bluetooth did require assistance because he wanted to fight the Germans. So when Harald Bluetooth went to war with the Holy Roman Emperor Otto, he called on Jarl Håkon in Norway to aid him. Håkon answered the call and went to Denmark with a large force and a mighty fleet. But when the tricky Jarl arrived in Denmark, he kept the fleet and force back and only brought with him his 12 best men when he went to Harald Bluetooth to report for duty. The Danish king wasn't particularly pleased. Technically, the Jarl had fulfilled his duty when he answered the call and provided a force, even though it was ridiculously small. Harold Bluetooth's mood didn't improve much when Jarl Håkon explained that he would be more than happy to have the rest of his soldiers and ships join the war effort, 
on the minor condition that Håkon no longer would have to pay taxes to Denmark. Harald Bluetooth didn't have much of a choice. He needed the Norwegian contingent to stand a chance against Otto, so he agreed to Håkon's demand. The Jarl and his mighty force were then sent to defend Danneverke, the defensive line in the south. Otto's army attacked, but failed to get past the Norwegians. After that, Håkon was very pleased with himself. He had commanded a successful military operation, he had survived, and he wouldn't have to pay taxes anymore. Not too shabby. He loaded his warriors back on his ships and prepared to sail back to Norway. Unfortunately, they had no good wind, so they were stuck in Denmark for quite some time. For such a long time, in fact, that Otto managed to gather his fleet and sail to Jutland. There, he won a decisive victory against Harald Bluetooth, after which the Danish king and his family had to be baptized. You know all about this from previous episodes. But since this was the Viking Age, communications weren't all that great, so Håkon Jarl was unaware that Harald Bluetooth had been defeated by the Germans. So when King Harald sent an invitation to the Jarl to stop by and visit him on the way home to Norway, Jarl Håkon thought he would be treated to a festive victory party as a send-off from a grateful Danish king. He was in for a surprise. When the Norwegian fleet arrived, they soon learned of the defeat. But by then it was too late. Harald Bluetooth demanded that Jarl Håkon also be baptized, and that he take a bunch of missionaries with him to spread Christianity in Norway. Even though Jarl Håkon didn't have to pay taxes anymore, he still was Harald Bluetooth's vassal, so he didn't really have a choice on the matter. He had to comply, become a Christian, and make room on his ships for the missionaries. But the Jarl wasn't happy about it. Sailing home, he forced the missionaries off his ship on an island, and to blow off some steam, he ordered his ships to land in Sweden. There, he burned them and proceeded to raid his way back home to Norway on foot. The raiding may have improved Jarl Håkon's mood, but his relationship with Harald Bluetooth never recovered. The king couldn't forgive the Jarl's trick to get out of paying taxes, and the Jarl couldn't forgive the forced baptism. But even though Håkon was now basically independent, he never took the title king. He remained Jarl Håkon. The following years were good years for the Jarl. He married a young woman named Thora, and they had many children. He had many other concubines too, and he could easily afford all of these women, since he controlled the lucrative trade route to the north, and didn't have to share any of his income with the king of Denmark. In the meantime, back in Denmark, Sven Forkbeard had toppled his father Harald Bluetooth. Even though Harald wasn't his friend by any stretch of the imagination, this was still bad news for Jarl Håkon, because Sven decided to take back control over Norway. He sent a large force to Norway with the so-called Jomsvikings. The Danish attack came out of the blue, taking the Norwegians completely by surprise. The Danes killed and raided in eastern Norway around the Oslo Fjord, the part of the country that had previously been under Danish control. Jarl Håkon sent messengers to all directions to chieftains to come and defend Norway against Sven Forkbeard. The two forces eventually met at a semi-legendary naval battle somewhere along the west coast of Norway at a place called Jørungavåg. Even the Jomsviking saga, which describes the battle in some detail, gives two different locations for the battle. To begin with, the weather was great, sunny and warm, something of a rarity on the west coast of Norway to be honest. The battle was brutal, and many warriors fell, both on the Danish and the Norwegian sides. But even though the Danes only had 60 ships, and the Norwegians had been able to muster no fewer than 180, it soon started to look like the Danes were going to be victorious. The Jarl realized that he needed to do something if he wanted to win the battle. 
So he got off his ship on a small island where, where the pagan Jarl prayed to the Old Norse gods to grant him victory. He prayed especially to his own personal deity, a goddess called Thorgerd Helgabrud. It didn't help. So Hakon stepped up the worship and started to sacrifice to the goddess. But that didn't help either. The Danes still seemed to be on, the, on their way to victory. The desperate Hakon decided that the goddess demanded a human sacrifice, so he sacrificed some slaves. Still didn't help. The battle was going the Danish way, and Jarl Hakon was running out of time. Then he called to the goddess and told her she could pick her own sacrifice as long as she would help him win the battle. The goddess gave him a sign. She wanted Erling, the Jarl's seven-year-old son. Hakon promptly complied and handed the boy to Kark, the slave he'd been given the day that he had received his first tooth. He ordered Kark to kill the boy, which he did. As soon as Erling had been sacrificed, the weather turned. The sky grew dark and a sudden wind whipped up a storm. It started to rain and hail, and even though the change in weather was unpleasant for everyone, it was by far worse for the Danes, because the wind was blowing in their faces, meaning that they were all but blinded by the rain and the hail. Predictably enough, the Norwegians started to win. If the message wasn't clear enough, the saga relates that the goddess sent her sister to shoot magic arrows from her ten fingers, and each arrow hit a Dane, killing him instantly. The Norwegian side was triumphant, and Jarl Håkon's position was secure. No one dared to mess with him for ten years after the battle at Jørungavåg. It shouldn't have escaped anyone at this point that Jarl Håkon Sigurdsson hadn't adopted Christianity, even though Harald Bluetooth had forced him to be baptized. The Jarl persecuted Christians and made sure the new religion wouldn't spread in Norway. In the end, of course, his efforts could only delay the arrival of Christianity, and he would turn out to be the last Norwegian ruler who would be true to the old gods. On the whole, life wasn't too bad under this decade of Jarl Håkon's unchallenged rule. The economy was flourishing, the weather was great, and there was peace. All was well. If you weren't a Christian, obviously. But because of his personal conduct, Håkon still wasn't particularly popular. With every passing year, he became increasingly nasty and unpleasant, especially to women. He basically turned into a serial sex offender. He didn't just force himself on servant girls, but also on the wives and daughters of powerful men. And that has always been a very risky thing to do. When Jarl Håkon tried to rape the beautiful Gudrud, wife of a chieftain named Orm, Orm called together a large force against the lecherous Jarl. At this point, Håkon was no longer a young man. He was 60 years old when he had to face this revolt, and he was in no condition to fight a proper battle. To make matters worse, there were few chieftains who were willing to rally to his cause and defend him against Orm. So to save his life, Håkon tried to escape with Kark, his trusted tooth slave. They tried to hide at a farm belonging to one of the Jarl's mistresses in Trendelag, but she rightly told him that her farm would be one of the first places Orm and his men would come looking for Jarl Håkon. She suggested that Håkon and Kark hide under the floor in her pigsty, so that's what they did. At the time, with well-nigh perfect timing, a guy called Olav Tryggvason showed up. He claimed to be the son of Tryggve Olavsson, who had been killed by Gudrid Eriksson, the brother of Harald Greycloak. He was the boy Gunhild, mother of kings, had so desperately tried to track down and kill, remember? Now he turned up in the middle of Orm's rebellion with only five ships, but with plenty of silver and other riches to buy friends and allies. Olav's and Orm's forces joined together and set out to hunt down Jarl Håkon. They showed up at the mistress's farm, where Olav Tryggvason declared 
that whoever killed Jarl Håkon would be richly rewarded. Kark, Jarl Håkon's trusted tooth slave, heard what Olaf Tryggvason said, and when the Jarl fell asleep, Kark cut off his master's head, crawled out from their hiding place under the pigsty, and went to deliver Håkon's head to Olaf and to collect his reward. Olaf Tryggvason accepted the Jarl's head, but instead of rewarding Kark, he cut off his head too. It wasn't considered breaking his promise though, because Kark had killed his master, and that was an unforgivable crime in Viking Age Scandinavia. Hawkins and Kark's heads were strung up and stoned while people shouted insults at them. The rest of Hawkins' body was burned. And thus ended the life of the last pagan ruler of Norway. The new king, Olaf Tryggvason, was a Christian and quite insistent that everybody else join the new religion as well. We'll talk more about that next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, please don't hesitate to recommend it to your friends, family, and random strangers. Also, please consider leaving a favorable review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. This is another excellent way to attract new listeners and to motivate me to go on producing the show. Another good way to support the show and to dig a little deeper into Old Norse mythology is to go to Amazon or Kindle and purchase my book, Viking Mythology, Thor, Odin, Loki, and the Old Norse Myths. I also recommend checking out the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you're interested in more content related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry emails about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.